In 2008, I saw a movie which was promoted as a slick, explosive thriller that builds to an exciting climax. The movie was called Vantage Point. It didn't get very good reviews, but it used a technique which I thought was quite fascinating. It told the story through multiple perspectives, returning time and time again to the same point, so that the viewer could see the event from a different angle. And only when all the angles had been covered, the full truth of what had happened was revealed. The strapline in the poster read, Eight points of view, one truth. In some respects, that's what happens in the book of Revelation. The Apostle John is seeing the same apocalyptic scenes from different angles, and frequently the scene cuts from heaven to earth and back again. In chapters 1 to 3, in a vision of the risen Christ, John is given Christ's perspective of the seven churches of Asia Minor through messages which are of enduring uh, relevance and application to all churches of whatever time or location. Then in chapter 4, John is taken up in the spirit to heaven where he sees the activities of the throne room of God. In chapter 5, he's given the inside story of how God's redemptive plan is implemented through the triumphant lion who is also the lamb, who alone is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll of God's redemptive purposes. Then in chapter 6, all the way through to chapter 20, by a series of visions interspersed with meaningful interludes, John is given heaven's perspective on what's happening and will happen ultimately to a fallen earth and its sinful, rebellious inhabitants. Last week in chapter 7, we saw the beautiful and inspiring vision of God's people as they were sealed and protected from the temporal judgments which would fall on the unbelieving world and how the Lamb gives them assurance that he will provide for them forever in his eternal kingdom. And since we've already viewed Judgment Day with the opening of the sixth seal towards the end of chapter 6, called the Great Day of the Wrath of Him who sits on the throne and of the Lamb, we might be excused for feeling a certain déjà vu as we come to the opening of the seventh seal at the beginning of chapter 8. Because what happens at this point is that we're taken back to a position where we view the same events unfolding, but from a different perspective or vantage point. In this way, further details are unpacked. In chapter 6, John's perspective was of the Lamb as he opened the seven seals. But in chapter 8, things are seen from the perspective of the seven angels who stand before God's throne. Uh, we don't know from Scripture the names of all of these chief angels, but we're pretty sure from various sources that uh, Gabriel and Michael were among them. These angels are given seven trumpets by which they will usher in God's judgments on the world. But first, the seventh seal must be opened by the Lamb. And when he does, there is, unexpectedly, silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, it seems a little whimsical for John to include this little detail of the half hour. Uh, it would seem totally insignificant. What's half an hour here or there when we're dealing with eternal issues? But his point is that here was a brief but adequate period for certain important matters to be dealt with. So what were these important matters? 
Firstly, although not the main point, John needed time to reflect on what he'd just seen. After all, in chapter 6, through heaven's eyes, he'd just seen the terrifying, awe-inspiring end of the world. And in chapter 7, he saw the glorious sight of God's complete people at the end of time, praising and glorifying their Redeemer. Surely these are subjects which should be occupying our attention on earth uh, more and more as we go through our lives. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians that since we've been raised with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, should we not set our hearts and minds on things above? How much do we do that, I wonder, in our busy lives? In another place, in Romans 13, Paul says, Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So the sense of progression here, of moving towards the culmination of all things and the omega point of all things, where Christ is in heaven at the right hand of God, is where his people also will be. Secondly, that half hour gave time for God's people to pray. God's people and their cries are so important to him that he commands heaven to be silent while they pray. Notice uh, that it is the prayers of all the saints here, all of God's people, not just special people, but all of the people who are in Christ who have trusted in him. Their prayers are heard, including those we read about in uh, chapter 6, verse 10, God's suffering and persecuted people who had been killed for their faithfulness to Jesus and his word. This is a fascinating cameo because the book of Revelation is the only place in Scripture where we read of what God's people pray in heaven. Now these, in chapter 6, are the martyrs whose blood, like Abel's of long ago, uh, calls out to the Lord for justice to be done at last, for their untimely deaths to be avenged. This may seem to be a difficult prayer for the Christian age in which Christ taught us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And we think of Stephen, who prayed for his murderers. But we must remember that those who lose their lives for the cause of Christ in the world do so because they placed their trust and confidence in God. In eternity, it is his honour and not ours which will be in view. Have you ever wondered how you will feel in heaven about those who still remain on the earth? As William Hendrickson says regarding Christians who have been wronged on earth and who are now in the Lord's presence, he says, The saint in glory does not desire personal vengeance any more than did Stephen. Uh, but he or she yearns for the coming of that great day when the majesty and holiness, the sovereignty and righteousness of God in Christ shall be publicly revealed. In other words, when his kingdom will come, as we pray it will, in all of its fullness. And that's what the saints in glory are praying for as God draws near for judgment. However, as we said, it is the prayers of all the saints which are involved here. And that includes those, who are, those prayers which are also being still offered on earth. And here we are still living in the time and sphere of God's grace towards sinners. So as Paul wrote, we're to pray for all people that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone as we seek as co God's co-workers to see souls rescued from the dominion of darkness 
and brought into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. However, sometimes we can feel discouraged with our prayers, which seem to be going no higher than the ceiling. But here in Revelation 8, we read something very encouraging. See verse 3, that an angel was given much incense for the golden censer, and that the smoke of this incense was mingled with the prayers of God's people as they went up before God. Now, in Old Testament ceremonies, special frankincense symbolizing prayer was used. Uh, it was, was offered in the tabernacle by the priests. And the symbolism was that the prayers offered through the, through the priests were purified so that they could reach God and be heard by him. Now, we also have a priest, the only priest we have. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we present our prayers. Why do we do that? Why do we pray in Jesus' name? Because in his own words, Jesus said to his Father, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, that you always hear me. The prayers of Jesus, the sinless one, never need to be purified, and he is interceding for us as our great high priest. That's what makes our prayers acceptable to God. And so if we ask, what is the much incense that is mingled with the prayers of God's people? The answer has to be the intercession for us in heaven of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he offers to the Father through the Holy Spirit. And that is why our prayers, as well as the prayers of the Lord's people in heaven, will be answered. Now, this powerful truth begs a question. The question is, why are the prayer meetings of the church on earth often so sparsely populated? If we could only catch the vision of how seriously our prayers are being taken by heaven, then our prayer meetings, whether physically or by Zoom, would be as well attended on any Sunday as any Sunday morning church service on a good day. Let's reflect on that. Let's take half an hour in silence to reflect on that. The third, the third reason why there was silence in heaven was that it gave time to consider the gravity of God's impending judgment. Now, in the Old Testament, on which the book of Revelation relies so heavily for its symbolism, uh, some silence sometimes precedes judgment in anticipation of what is to come. You could call it the lull before the storm. Uh, think of Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 7. Stand in silence in the presence of the sovereign Lord, for the awesome day of the Lord's judgment is near. Or Zechariah 2 verse 13. Be silent before the Lord, all humanity, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So for these three reasons then, uh, the, there was silence in heaven. But let's move on to consider, secondly, the trumpets of God, which we will call the war horns of heaven. After the prayers of God's people have gone up before him, the angel with the golden censer fills it again, this time with fire from the altar of prayer, and hurls it to the earth. What we are to connect with that is that the prayers of the saints are not disconnected with the judgments which come on the earth. There are immediately peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It's all very apocalyptic, as we do say. 
This is the language of Sinai. The holy God has come down to visit the earth, not with a social call, but with judgment. We think of Psalm 50, which looks ahead to that day. Our God shall surely come. Keep silence, shall not he. Before him fire shall waste. Great storms shall round about him be. And the seven chief angels prepare to sound the trumpets. Now, this is not the brass section of the HSO, the, uh, you might say, the Heavenly Symphony Orchestra. These are the war horns of heaven, symbolised by the ram's horn trumpets of Israel, the shofarot. The shofar was a war instrument used, for example, at the taking of Jericho by Joshua and the army of the Lord. After they'd gone round about Jericho seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets, there was then one long continuous blast on the trumpets. The Israelites gave a loud shout and the wall of the city collapsed. Read about that in Joshua chapter 6. The war horns were also used to warn the inhabitants of a city of imminent danger. These war horns of Israel are the trumpets the angels now use. When we think of images of angels with trumpets, I think our minds so often have been conditioned to think of Christmas card scenes with fluffy androgynous creatures with golden curls and, uh, and a floaty gown blowing on golden shiny trumpets. But if you want to know what a biblical angel is really like, just reflect a little on the name Gabriel, or we maybe say Gabriel as it's properly pronounced, which means mighty warrior of God. Imagine such a being equipped with a mighty war horn and you get the idea, which makes it totally understandable that when an angel of the Lord appeared to shepherds in the fields near Bethlehem, they were terrified. They were shaking in their boots, not least when they saw a great company of these beings, a great company of the armies of heaven in the skies, where those angels might have been expected as the Lord's armies to usher in God's judgment. Instead, they heralded in the age of grace and peace on earth to all those on whom God's favour rests. Now, however, in, in chapter 8 of Revelation, instead of bringing peace on earth, the angels are sounding the war horns, which will be the prelude to the judgments of God coming on a world which refuses to repent. These are warnings that for the people of the world, there's still time to repent and turn to God. As we, uh, as we read of the trumpets of God in chapters 8 and 9 of Revelation, it becomes clear that the language used is very similar to the descriptions of the plagues of Egypt in the book of Exodus. And that's no coincidence. In the Old Testament, Pharaoh and Egypt represent Satan and the world system which has rejected the one true and living God and has set up gods of its own. That's what your world and mine has done. Our world has done this. That's what he's talking about. Most people have no time for God. Instead, they give their lives to the modern idols of materialism, selfism, careerism, and so on, whatever comes first for them. And Satan has blinded their minds to the truth that, as John tells us in his first letter, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And just as God sent plagues into Egypt to challenge the false gods which the Egyptians had set up, so he has sent plagues and catastrophes upon the very world in which we live, 
starting with the curse God placed on the earth after Adam's sin. So let's move on then, thirdly, to consider the judgments of God. What are these judgments which the trumpets portend? And for this, I'm going to refer you to a chart which should appear on your screen. We see there that there are four trumpets announcing four judgments. The first judgment is called hail and fire mingled with blood. And that is signifying something which causes land and vegetation to be wasted. Dry land, trees and vegetation burned up. The second uh, trumpet announces the judgment of a, like, a, something like, John says, something like a huge mountain thrown into the sea. Now, we don't know exactly what these things are. Even by referring to other parts of Scripture, there's still much mystery. But this is something which pollutes saltwater sources and disrupts world trade. We see that uh, ships are also destroyed here. The third trumpet of, uh, announces the third judgment of a great blazing star called Wormwood, which is, is a, a herb which is a very bitter herb, Wormwood. This great blazing star falls on rivers and springs, signifying that something will pollute fresh water sources, turning the waters bitter and many people will die. The fourth angel, announcing, blowing his trumpet, uh, announces the judgment of the sun, moon, and stars turning dark. This is very mysterious. Uh, it signifies darkness, and we can assume it's something affecting atmospheric conditions, blotting out the light. Now, it isn't easy to arrive at answers as to exactly what these judgments mean, but certain things are clear, and it's the main lessons we should focus on in this, rather than be taken up with much speculation about little details in the, in the judgments themselves. Uh, the first thing we see clearly is that they are primarily directed at the environment. What is compromised in each case is human dependency on the earth and its resources. Secondly, notice this. As we shall see, they have been progressive throughout history. We've noted already how uh, in these visions in Revelation, the same events are addressed in, uh, from multiple perspectives. We saw how they were viewed in chapter 6 as the Lamb opened the seals, and now we hear the trumpets, and we'll yet again return in chapter 16 to view these same events through John's eyes from a different angle, as he has shown the seven angels pouring out the bowls of God's wrath. Thirdly, notice this. Notice how the destructive effect of these judgments is limited and measured. Only one-third is affected in each case. The Lord is limiting the severity of his judgments as he calls the human race to repent. But each time the same events are replayed, the effects are intensified. The human race is paying no attention. Humans have an almost seemingly unlimited capacity for stubbornness and intransigence as far as God is concerned. We can't be exact, as we say, about the nature of the catastrophes which are in mind because of the symbolism involved, but we can imagine the kinds of things which may qualify. Think of these. Things which affect dry land and vegetation, the sea, freshwater sources and the atmosphere. Since the curse of the fall, all creation has been thrown out of kilter, groaning for a better day. 
Imagine natural disasters like volcanic eruptions, tsunamis and earthquakes. Imagine man-made disasters like the destruction of the Amazon forest as human greed destroys irreplaceable ecosystems and indigenous dwellings. Imagine out-of-control forest fires whipping through places like California and Australia, many of which have resulted from careless camping and other human activity. Imagine extensive pollution of the seas through human litter and oil spills, smog disasters, the devastation of war. And though we pray God it will never happen, we can never rule out in all of this the aftermath of a nuclear explosion triggered by human madness. And COVID-19 could also be added to this list. But wait a minute, you may say to me, hang on, you, uh, you say um, some of the catastrophes you mentioned are man-made, not sent from heaven. In fact, you could all, almost uh, imagine Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion getting on their soapboxes at this point and saying, we told you so, you're killing the planet. But that's not the message of Revelation 8. The message of Revelation 8 is that what is dead First is not the planet, but our relationship with God. And that God intends these environmental catastrophes to be warning signs to sinful humanity that much worse is to follow unless, as a race, we repent. And with regard to the man-madeness of many of these catastrophes, the Lord has shown himself well able to factor into his plans and purposes man's propensity to evil. Greed and power grabbing. Jeremiah tells us that the Babylonian Empire was a cup in the Lord's hand to humble his people Judah. And of course, the most appalling event of all in all of history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, when the Creator was killed by his creation, was, as Peter tells us in Acts 2, by God's determinate purpose and foreknowledge. When catastrophes strike the Earth's environment in whatever shape, or form, natural or man-made, they are all from the trumpets. Let's be clear on that. They are all from the trumpets of God's judgments. And yet, whatever happens on this Earth, one inviolable principle stands intact. God is in control. As Ephesians 1.11 tells us, he is working out everything, everything, Underline that three times. In conformity with the purpose of his will. Why? For the praise of his glory. At the same time, this great and holy God does not treat human beings like the collateral damage of divine warfare. Let's be clear on that. He grieves to his heart. In Lamentations we read that though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. Ultimately, if you want a cause for these things, ultimately the cause of the response of heaven is not any severity on God's part, but rampant human sin and rebellion. There are still many, and Christians among them, who are ambivalent and prefer to be a little agnostic about the source of world disasters and say they're unable to reconcile the divine response of judgment in the book of Revelation with the love of God. My answer to that is, 
we're not required to. It's not our duty to do these things. We must leave that to God because in order to uh, reconcile these things, we would require the wisdom of God himself. And so our business in the matter is to trust him. And part of that trust is to, is to leave it to him to balance the equation. As Abraham of old said to the Lord as he stood before Sodom, which was about to be destroyed by divine judgment, will not the judge of all the earth always do the right thing? The answer expected was yes. The problem which gets in the way of our thinking in these matters is that we've never fully realised the depth of the sinfulness of man. And we've also never fully realised the immeasurably pure holiness of God. No matter who we are, we deserve only his judgment and wrath for our sins. And yet, he reached down to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and took the judgment for human sins into himself on the cross until he extinguished it, crying out, it is finished. And whoever believes that he did that for them will not be condemned, but will experience everlasting life and peace with God. Just as the people of Goshen were safe and the, the, the judgments of Egypt, the plagues never touched the people of God in Goshen, especially when the blood of the Lamb was above their doorposts at the tenth plague. In the same way, God's people on earth will never experience any ultimate harm from anything that the unbelieving world can throw at them. The biggest problem in all of this is not the justice of God, but the complacency of man. For most people, as long as they can avoid thinking about God, they will. People have invested their lives in this world, and as long as things go smoothly for them, they will not think about God or the idea of a lost eternity awaiting them. A phrase which crops up interestingly in the book of Revelation regularly is this phrase, the inhabitants of the earth. Now that it does not mean everyone who lives on the earth. Rather it means those who have made the earth their home, their everything. As far as God's people go, you read about them in, in Hebrews chapter 11, those who sought a better country, a better city, whose builder and maker is God. As Jim Reeves' well-known song says, this world is not my home, I'm only passing through. But for those who have made it their home and their only home, in defiance of God and what awaits them, those folks are cut loose from God and his rule over them. These are the people towards whom the judgments of God are directed when the seven angels sound their, their war horns. The time has come for them to be shaken from their complacency and to realise that they need a saviour from the guilt and punishment of their sins. Now can I just say at this point that if you've been shaken by what you've heard today, can I recommend that you get in touch with us at uh, info at charlottechapel.org. We would love to have the opportunity to talk these things through with you, to listen to your concerns and to try and answer your questions from a biblical point of view. If today you're already a Christian, I'd like to ask you, when terrible things happen in the world, be it through wars, disease, economic crisis, natural disaster, how should we respond? Uh, charitable donations for those in need? 
Of course. We are human too, and we feel when our fellow humans go through suffering. Uh, it's right that we should show the love of Christ to a suffering world, as he did. What about prayer? Again, it goes without question. But the one question is, important question, what do we pray for? Do we pray simply that the, the physical and social needs of their situation be met and that life be restored to them as it was before? Uh, during the COVID-19 crisis, we often hear people say, oh, that things would just return to normal. What the inhabitants of the earth don't realise is that their idea of normal is dangerous when it comes to their eternal welfare. The fact is, we need to be wakened up by a heavenly trumpet blast to realise the fullness of the danger we are in as a race. C.S. Lewis, reflecting on the topic of suffering in his book, The Problem of Pain, and we recall that he himself had suffered many losses by this time. Uh, he said, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the sinner can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. It's right to pray for physical and social needs and to take social action in relief. But when we see catastrophes strike the earth, as we do so often on our TV screens, do we view them through the lens of God's judgment on this largely unbelieving world? It's tragic to see so many people refusing and rejecting the Christ who died that their sins might be forgiven. Uh, if only they fully realised that the God who pours judgment out in chapter 8 of Revelation is the very same God as the Lamb who is at the very centre of the throne in chapter 7, who leads his flock like a shepherd and carries the lamb in, lambs in his arms and who is waiting to be gracious to them, to forgive their sins and to wipe away every tear from their eyes, if only they would turn to him for redemption. Where we stand today depends on whether or not we are listening to God, whether we are reading his word and believing what he says. He is trustworthy. In all of his character, he is a gracious and wonderful saviour. I pray that that will be the experience of many who hear this message and have not yet turned to him. Turn to him now and tell him everything that's on your heart confessing your sins to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Your holiness and justice are fearful to your enemies, but your love and compassion captured the hearts of all those who turn to you. Today may many reflect on all the terrible things which are happening in our world, and may they turn to you for the forgiveness and assurance which your love has provided. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.